0: It was really good. Like, I, I really yeah. liked the book. I, I don't like the main character. And it kind of sucks. No, he's horrible. Like, it sucks that history remembers, like, oh, yes, Frankenstein's monster instead of, like, another name. You know what I, I mean? mean? Yeah. Yeah. It it's a, uh, It's kind of a shame. Do you
1: know what also sucks? All right, I really hate when people refer to the snowman as Frosty because Frosty was actually the scientist who created the snowman, not the snowman itself.
0: Wait, is that true? No, I'm doing a
1: bit because we're talking about Frosty and Frankenstein today. (laughs)
0: Hi, I'm Juliette. I'm Catherine. And on this episode of I'll Be Pod for Castmas, we're talking about Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley through the lens of the song Frosty the Snowman.
1: We are. Can you remind me why we're doing this?
0: Partly because it's the premise of I'll Be Pod for Castmas. Oh, yeah. So part of the idea of i Be Pod for Castmas is exploring, analyzing, and unpacking different parts of Christmas media through the lens of classical literature. But thanks to a donation incentive, we need to do a Halloween episode. And so we're going to be looking at a piece of classic literature that's very Halloween-y. Yeah. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, through the lens of a piece of Christmas pop culture, Frosty the Snowman.
1: Yes, I love it. Let's get started.
0: (laughs) If you think about the cultural idea of Frankenstein, especially before reading this book, what do you picture?
1: Uh, So pretending I haven't read Mary Shelley, I hear Frankenstein and I see that green monster with the the bolts in his neck, Boris Karloff, those movie adaptations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about like science as a cautionary tale and like the evil scary monster that the mad scientist creates and it's alive and all, all of that
0: good stuff. So Mary Shelley's book, it actually hand waves a lot of that mad scientist science part. You know, the flipping of the big switches, Igor going and getting the brain, the lightning. None of that's here at all. In like the history Mm. of science as an academic discussion gets plenty of time. But the actual biology, chemistry, or composition of a living person from parts of cadavers is skipped over. The spectacle of a lot of adaptations is often pointing to the wrong place.
1: Right, so, in a way, it's a little bit closer. um the mm-hmm. Mary Shelley's book is closer to kind of the logic behind Frosty the Snowman because that also kind of has a lot of that hand waving away the 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 logistics of like how things are
0: created. How does it go? Oh, sure. There must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found. For when they placed it on his head, he began to dance around. And like, Frosty the Snowman is not a cautionary tale about putting hats on snowmen or you'll be playing God. (laughs) And neither to me is Frankenstein, really, though I know that's a really common reading of the concept
1: like google what's the theme of frankenstein it, it's along those lines of be careful about doing science and the ethical implications of what you're doing and i i think it's fair if, to to read it in that way and to say that like maybe that's what mary shelley was intending um she she did call it a modern prometheus which is a reference to a greek mythology that's kind of about the dangers of like humans trying to have the power of gods. Um, And like, that's all well and good. That's a valid reading. But I would argue that we're reading this book in 2022. So we have about two centuries of scientific advancement since Mary Shelley wrote it. So it's almost like too late. If you're reading this, it's too late. It's too late to say... Oh, be careful about your science. Because we already have the science. So, I mean, like, kind of the first thing that comes to mind is, like, artificial intelligence. Like, we have sort of this not quite human, but capable of pretending to be human type thing. That's that really can...
0: common in, you know, like, oh, I'm yeah. doing this modern Frankenstein. Is it, isn't it? it interesting? It's about this AI.
1: Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not really interested in talking about AI in general but especially for this if that's okay unless you're really interested in ai we
0: can <laughs> we can go there but i uh. no i think we can really focus on what we're able to unpack by using this lens of frosty the snowman
1: right and so if we're thinking about frosty the snowman and we're looking at Shelley's text in both cases it's like okay we have frosty or we have this creation by a human that is human-like it's a it's a creature um and it acts like a human and it exists we're not going to worry about the logistics of how it's here just it's here what right, do we do already now?
0: created now what right yeah
1: do we how do we respond do we dance and play around with them or do we run away screaming
0: this is a great segue into giving some summary of the book for those who need a refresher or who haven't read it. That's a great idea,
1: especially because the book is so different from a lot of the, those adaptations and sort of the cultural idea of like what Frankenstein is. Um. So how about I give a quick recap of the book and then you give a quick quick recap of Rassi the Snowman? Sounds great to me. So... Mary Shelley's Frankenstein actually begins with a guy named Walton, uh, who is on a journey north writing letters to his sister. what you say? And he comes across this man dying on the ice. Uh, this man is Victor Frankenstein. He's this scientist who has discovered the secret of life. And, and as we said, there's not a lot of, like, the, the book kind of glosses over that because he's like, oh, it's too dangerous to tell you how this happened. But I created a being using the parts of dead humans and brought it to life. And now like we're we're having some problems with this this creation. So um Victor originally the the being that he creates runs away um victor's family faces these mysterious tragedies like the death of his younger brother and about halfway through the book victor tells walton about how he encountered the being and the being came to victor to tell him what happened ever since you know you created me dad and i went off into the world so the being Narrates how he learned to speak and learn language by observing this family, the DeLacy family, who have their own tragic fall from nobility backstory. Um, He becomes really fond of this family, kind of has this like parasocial relationship with them. And when he tries to introduce himself to them and befriend them, they... Totally freak out because he looks ugly. and so so they're really mean to him. They freak out. They move. the being realizes, like, oh, I'm this ugly monster. Nobody's ever going to be friends with me. Um, I'm very lonely. So he goes back to Victor and says, Hey, can you make another person like me so I'm not so alone? Victor is like, Yeah, no problem. And then he changes his mind. Um, so he like starts to build a, like a wife for the for the being and then destroys her the being retaliates by killing victor's fiance so now victor is the one looking for revenge and he goes off into the tundra um trying to you know hunt down the being and kill him and that's when kind of the book starts to wrap up because that's how walton has discovered him um victor dies walton has this interesting altercation with the being so we know like okay victor wasn't just making this up like this is a real thing um that, that's kind of like the gist that's the that's the 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 big plot points of frankenstein so just so we're all on the same page you have less to explain juliet <laughs> it's an interesting book because it's there's these layers of narration. You get like the being is talking to his creator, who's talking to Walton, who's writing these letters. So it's really cool that like, I think a lot of times the, the adaptations of Frankenstein don't do justice to that really interesting, like layering effect.
0: Hmm. And there's also layers to the Frosty the Snowman song. We're not getting a direct account. It's all they say. Well, here's the song. Frosty the Snowman was a jolly, happy soul, with a corncob pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. Frosty the Snowman is a fairy tale, they say. He was made of snow, but the children know he came to life one day. There must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found, for when they placed it on his head, he began to dance around. Oh, Frosty the Snowman was alive as he could be, and the children say he could laugh and play just the same as you and me. Oh, Frosty the Snowman knew the sun was hot that day, so he said, Let's run and we'll have some fun now before I melt away. Down to the village with a broomstick in his hand, running here and there, all around the square, saying, Catch me if you can. He led them down the streets of town, right to the traffic cop. And he only paused a moment when he heard him holler, stop. Oh, Frosty the snowman had to hurry on his way. But he waved goodbye, saying, don't you cry. I'll be back again someday.
2: Yay!
0: I think it's important
1: that we're acknowledging that we're getting these different layers of narration because who's telling the story shapes what we know about it and like how we react to it. Um, so like, I think it's really interesting that we get Walton's point of view and Victor's point of view, two people who are very not sympathetic towards the being, and then we get the mm-hmm. being's point of view. And, and by the way, I, I've intentionally been saying being instead of monster, um, because it's like a little bit less loaded. Mm -hmm. Are we okay with that?
0: Yes. And I think especially that I want to be clear that we are both especially sympathetic to the being. I want to be clear that the being may be put outside like the set of human, but we're not putting him outside the set of person. The being is just the most appropriate, neutral name available to us. While he is seen as monstrous, it's pretty clear that he was not always and only a monster, if you think of him as a monster at all.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think of him as a monster at all. I I think he's considered a monster by the characters in the book, Um, and perhaps that's why he becomes one but it feels so understandable why he's doing what he's doing because he's when we get his point of view we see he's fundamentally just a really lonely person he wants to feel connected to others he wants people who will love him he wants to love people like he has such genuine affection for the de family when he first encounters them Like, he even helps in with their chores and brings wood to them so they don't have to. And yet, when he tries to approach them, they just, like, immediately on seeing him freak out and reject him. And it's that rejection, like, that refusal of seeing him as a person, that's what starts him on the path towards violence.
0: Yes, and I want to bring in a little bit more of our lens here, where the snowman is described as being as alive as he could be. like. right. And I really like think being. that wording is interesting. The idea of being as alive as you could be, because the being is also as alive as he could be. We're all socially created as part of being fully realized as people. And the being, he wants to be more alive not in the sense of not dead but in the sense that to completely deprive a person of socialization is to deprive them of the fullness of being alive but he's denied the social recreation the opportunities to be alive the being takes the opportunity to be as alive as he could be despite all of that Mm.
1: so what is the book saying about Opportunities for fully realized lives that are denied. Uh, there's a lot that what you said opens up. Like, it makes me think about imprisonment and the cruelty mm-hmm. of depriving people of human company by putting them in, in isolation. But then it, and, and like, that's one direction we could go. But I think the book Looking itself
0: Felix Delici's father in law, for instance.
1: Oh, totally. I'm a little bit more interested, personally, um, in maybe looking at a a different way of a fully realized life being stifled. Mm -hmm. Not to make everything gay, but everything is gay. Julia, can we talk about the constant homoerotic subtext of this book?
0: Oh my god, there is so much of it. I know we say this about every text we read, but oh my god, there is so much constant romanticism.
1: yeah like i usually say oh that book wasn't gay enough but this one is like this is just about gay enough
0: and i kind of want to parse out the difference there between like homoeroticism and homoromanticism mm. this book is not really about bodies it's not about their bodies it's about companionship this okay, so- story as a whole seems like seriously uninterested in bodies Even grotesque ones like the beings or even beautiful ones. We get a lot more about people. This book seems much more interested in persons when it could so easily have been all about bodies instead.
1: Right. So you're saying homoeroticism would be like the body. Homoromanticism is the people, the companionship.
0: If you read Moby Dick, it's very easy to get, oh, how much of other men's bodies is like relevant and recognized mm-hmm. and just straight up in the text. Whereas the ardent desire for the company of other men in particular and the way that fulfills specific men, you know, fulfills Walton, fulfills Victor, the way they look to other men for that kind of bonded companionship. Doesn't ever seem to be through the lens of admiring bodies in that way,
1: yeah, there's a lot of friend language, and yeah, like the emphasis on companionship and company. um, and that that's really interesting, especially when we think about the main body of the book, which is the being, because we're told that he has an ugly body and that's the source of a lot of his unhappiness but we don't really get a description of like like a really vivid detailed description of what the being looks like. We just get a lot about how he feels alienated because of his body.
0: And I think with the idea of being alienated because of your body, it'd be interesting to read this story with a trans lens. Because so much of what we know about the being's body is directly through his own experience of dysphoria. I mean, I I really think that is the right word for the experience that keeps being relayed to us. Also, I I don't mean to make everything about Paradise Lost, but... but... But there is a direct reference in Frankenstein
1: to the part of Paradise Lost where Eve admires and understands her form in a reflection. Uh, The being has a really similar moment, which I want to read it out loud. Um, Mm -hmm. This is the being speaking. He says, I had admired the perfect forms of my cottagers, their grace, beauty, and delicate complexions. But how was I terrified when I viewed myself in a transparent pool? At first I started back. Unable to believe that it was indeed I who was reflected in the mirror. And when I became fully convinced that I was in reality the monster that I am, I was filled with the bitterest sensations of despondence and mortification.
0: I know. (laughs) And he calls himself a monster, not because of doing anything monstrous, Mm -hmm. but because that's how he's perceived and and because he literally learns to read and gets his understanding of how the world works this is wild if you haven't read this story he learns to read and gets his understanding of how the world works by reading paradise lost yep (laughs) he thinks of himself as a monster because he sees the way he is treated and he's afraid that he must therefore be satan he seeks out victor his creator because if Victor can make an Eve for him, then he's Adam. But if Victor doesn't, then he's Satan. That's the structure of the world to him.
1: I love I love that how you put that, because, like, how he fits into the world depends entirely on how Victor and other people in general treat him. Like, the other characters dictate the story, and he will, fit himself as needed based on that so for me i think the tragedy of the story is ultimately the inability of frankenstein and the Delaces and and all of the characters really to empathize with him and to see him as a human because it's the only way he could be a human is if they see him and say yes you are similar to me
0: Mm -hmm. which our similarities are more similar than our differences yes like we are similar
1: enough that we can be companions to each other and that you are worthy of some basic some basic decency Mm -hmm. and respect so Juliet, i have a question for you uh bringing this back to frosty the snowman we have Mm -hmm. frosty the snowman was alive as he could be but the children say he could laugh and play just the same as you and me. Why is it that the children embrace Frosty as just the same as you and me, but in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, nobody, not even the children, can embrace the being
2: in that same way?
0: I think think it's time to talk about class.
1: Oh, you actually have an answer for my question. This is exciting. <laughs> Tell me more, Juliet.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is an idea. I'm, work- I'm working on this. It is. Yeah. Oh, I'm so interested. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so I think there's a way to do a class reading of this that actually holds up pretty well. The component parts the children have to put together to make Frosty the Snowman are an old silk hat, coal, a corncob pipe. Mm-hmm. There's even a cop trying to stop them. I mean, the children yep. are coded as working class. And the snowman they're creating is of a kind with them and equal to the mm-hmm. creator. The creation is equal to the creator. In terms of class, yeah. When, when Victor Frankenstein is creating the being, the being is ostensibly made by Victor Frankenstein from lower class people's body parts, from, you know, parts derived from a potter's field, from Popper's grave, a, a common grave. And there's this contrast here where even the child that we see encountered in the story of Frankenstein is uh, William Frankenstein. That's Victor Frankenstein's younger brother? brother, who is yeah. like... A noble child, a child raised to be spoiled and in the upper class. Uh, when he encounters the being, he's literally like, "Wait till I tell my father about
1: this."
0: <laughs> like, And,, yep. it also is tied into the idea that, like, that child has a different way of viewing the world based on stories he's been told. He sees himself as a prince. As this young princeling, and therefore sees the being as an ogre, based on stories he's been told, based on likely you know fantasy stories he's been able to read as this young little princeling.
1: He doesn't have that question of am I Adam or am I Satan? He knows who he is. He's the he's the
0: spoiled prince, <laughs> right? And bringing the the Adam, both William Frankenstein, the 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 child, and the being are impacted by these the stories they have read and what they've been trained to see. You know, to see oneself as better than the other people you encounter, or to see yourself as loathsome compared to others.
1: Super interesting that also makes me think about the Delacy family, because when they're first introduced, they're we're we're meant to understand them as a low-income family. Uh, but it's interesting because the being does not know what that means. So the first time the being encounters the Delacies, he's like, Whoa, these people have it made. They have a structure that keeps them safe from the rain. And they have fire and food. And I don't know why they're crying all the time. And then... After observing them and starting to learn the language, he comes to realize that they're unhappy because they live in poverty, which is a totally new idea to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And but then, like a (laughs) chapter later, you, you know where I'm going with this. We find out, like, don't worry, readers, they're not really poor. They have good breeding. There's kind of that like Oliver twist. (laughs) type thing where it's like you can't let your readers actually empathize with a poor character they have to be related to someone rich so we know they're Mm -hmm. of good stock so yeah do you want to talk about the de lacy's backstory
0: so the backstory on the de lacy's a story within the story so we begin with felix de lacy his sister agatha and his father who is a french aristocrat a corrupt judge places a Turkish merchant in prison, sentenced to death on the day his daughter, Safi, has arrived from Constantinople. It's obvious that this is an act of corruption and prejudice, and Felix responds honorably, trying to find some way to speak to the merchant who is in an isolated prison cell, as we mentioned earlier, you know, deprived of human contact. Felix eventually figures out a way to speak to him through a grate in the cell and came each night to try and accompany and comfort him and find some way of securing his release. This merchant is, of course, incredibly thankful and offers a huge reward, which Felix rebuffs. And in the course of this process, he meets Safi, and the two seem to fall for each other. Safi's father is all too happy to promise Felix that they will be wed as soon as he's made safe and out of France. Felix and Safi develop ways of communicating by letters, despite not sharing a common language. These very letters are how the being comes to learn the details of the story that he couldn't glean from watching the De Lacy's in their poor cottage. He then gives the letters to Victor, who eventually gives them to Walden. On the night before the execution is to take place, Felix puts into action his elaborate plot for freeing the Turkish merchant, and it works. Except... After the fact, though the merchant is freed and successfully out of the country, Felix's plot is discovered and his father and sister thrown into prison. Because, you know. Felix leaves Sophie and her father to return to Paris and throw himself before the court to free his father and sister. The judges remain as corrupt as ever. And the best they can do is be exiled where they find a rural cottage in Germany where the being encounters them. Because of the diminishing of the De Lacy's fortunes, Safi's father now refuses to let her marry Felix. But eventually, Safi escapes to track down the De Lacy's in Germany and reunited, and with the wealth she brought with her, they're able to live a charmed, rustic life. Even the, like, very pastoral De Lacy's actually turn out to just be, like, temporarily inconvenienced European nobility (laughs) like while they're really poor like actually working for their food that they're occasionally giving up meals to you know allow the the elder family to eat they're not actually living in poverty because they're poor but because they had this like double crossing fall from grace and Mm. it's also a really weird aside in the story that like ends up feeling more like a like a Raphael Sabatini or Alexander Dumas story a little bit. I, but the vengeance, double-crossing, and betrayal within the De Lacy's story are something the being is witnessing and using to inform his model of the world and the potential cruelties available to man. This lesson in subtlety and skullduggery proves a useful skill later in his Vengeance against his creator. I think it's cool that that's yet another
1: layer of narration because this story, this, as you said, it's kind of a weird aside. It's substantiated with letters from the Felix de Lacy that themselves provide yet another layer of narration. You have the the letters within the stories within the letters, mm-hmm. and 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 again it's like that those letters because somebody from a noble class has asserted that the story is true that's what kind of adds the level of
0: verification that Walton seems to need to believe the story mhm and so we end up with this this situation where everywhere (laughs) the being turns there are these like glorified uh noble people who view him as the worst thing that they've ever encountered in their entire life and it's like oh yeah but how many of those people would also treat just any like Reasonably ugly working class person, the same way. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, I don't think we would have gotten to this
1: realization if we hadn't had Frosty the Snowman to help us out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you for putting that together, Juliet. <laughs> Aha, really interesting. <laughs>
0: And while Frosty the Snowman had to hurry on his way, he did wave goodbye, saying, Don't you cry. I'll be back again someday.
1: Uh, So our next episode will shift gears and use Frankenstein as a lens to discuss Frosty Returns, which is the made-for-TV animated special in the 90s that's a sequel to the 1969 made for tv special um both of which pretty much defined my childhood so i'm excited
0: i am too you can find me juliette on the internet at mousewife games if twitter is still up at this point but more than likely at folly persist on tumblr and at folly on co-host uh, I'm
1: Catherine, but you really don't have to find me on the internet. Um, however, you can find the show at at Christmas on Co-Host and wherever podcasts are found.
0: Until next time. Happy castmas to all. Into all a pod night. <laughs>
2: 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. Andrew, Andrew, what are you doing? Oh, hey, Marn. Uh, So I'm playing through an alternate reality game, and there's a number station puzzle that we just can't solve. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I tried everything else, and I figured that the best way to solve it would be to get into its head and think like a number station. I've been saying numbers into microphones for hours.
1: Okay, well, I, I think I have a better idea. What's that? You could just listen to the Argonauts podcast every two weeks. I could let you know the ins and outs of old Args and give you a deep dive on how they were created.
2: Uh, do you think we could like have a nuanced discussion about game-making philosophy and how cultures around games have changed as well?
1: Yeah, and you can definitely continue to fail to solve old Args along the way.
2: Well, it sure would be cool if that was a podcast you could find to bung with a bunch of other great shows over on the Moonshot Network.
1: You know, it sure would.
2: <laughs> well, cool. Thanks for the invite. Uh anyways, I'm going to get back to this though. 23 19 Okay.